the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, moral chemistry and learning dogs. In addition, Gaurav Suri will join us to discuss a certain ambiguity. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Feeling about the same for the past couple of weeks, in fact, <laughs> for some reason. So I'm going to start with the quote of the week. It's been so long since we've had the quote of the week. <laughs> wow, I'm actually excited. So this comes from Roald Hoffman, who was the 1984 Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. And he says, there are no bad molecules, only evil human beings. <laughs> Do you have any bad molecules, Charles? Probably plenty, I think. And they're floating around my system. <laughs> So bad molecules, evil human beings. Well, what about bad human beings? Oh, that's the scary thing. <laughs> yeah. He's more concerned about careless human beings who yeah. might be accidentally unleashing chemicals or modified life forms that could wreak havoc on the population. If anything, it's survival of the fittest, so he should take an evolutionary perspective. Oh, of course. Anyway, he's just addressing this whole issue about safety that it seems like the whole chemical community has really not given a hard look at. Well, I mean, this has always been the blight of the chemical industry is sort of containing, I guess, the runoff, the waste that they often right. produce. So right. probably requires railing in those evil human beings. <laughs> See, guns don't kill people. It's the damn bullets that do. <laughs> <laughs> the guns just they make them go really fast. That was a joke by Jake Johansson <laughs> from, like, uh, from the 80s, I think. I don't know where I heard that one. <laughs> Anyways, Professor Hoffman has actually written a play called Should Of, okay. which discusses these moral dilemmas. All right. Well, I guess uh, we should check out that play and have our morality tested. We should have. <laughs> we could have. All right, Frank. Well, what do you think about dogs? Dogs are cute, some of them. Yeah, well, do you think that they can take over the world? Well, you know, if there's one master evil scientist dog out there... <laughs> Who trains all the other ones to take over the world? Yeah. Well, it turns out that there might be. <laughs> now I'm scared. Yeah, well, so am I. Because it turns out dogs actually learn by imitating and mimicking other dogs. I'll bet you he eats at Taco Bell, too. Because all the restaurants will be Taco Bell in the future. <laughs> Yo quiero. Yes. It's known that humans can certainly learn by mimicking some primates, but it wasn't thought that some other animals like dogs could. Uh -huh. And a recent study has actually shown that this is the case. And this was work done by ethologist Frederick Range of the University of Vienna in Austria. And they basically had a dog trained to perform a certain task, had other dogs watch it, and it was a very unusual task, so it would be strange for the dogs to actually take upon that task. Mm -hmm. And it wound up they were able to mimic this task, show that learning occurred via the process of mimicking in dogs. Wow. The substrates for learning via mimicking are present much earlier in evolution than uh, previously thought. And if anyone wants to know more? Well, they can take a look in current biology. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Gaurav Suri will join us to discuss a certain ambiguity. So stay tuned.
to the Grok Science Show. Well, the world is full of uncertainty, but many might consider mathematics to provide the absoluteness lacking in other arenas of life. But just what are the limits of certainty in math and human knowledge? These ideas form the backdrop of the new release, A Certain Ambiguity, a mathematical novel. The author Gaurav Suri received his master's degree in mathematics from Stanford University and is currently a partner at a global management consulting firm in San Francisco. Mr. Suri, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me, Charles. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is certainly a very fascinating, if not somewhat unusual book. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a synopsis of, of the book here. Sure. The book is a novel, and it asks how we can be certain of what we know. And as Charles, you suggest in your introduction, mathematics is uh, often held as the bedrock of certainty. So it was natural to say, well, what can we be certain about in mathematics? And it compares and contrasts religious knowledge, which a lot of people have doubt about, or at least express doubts about, with mathematical knowledge. And it basically comes down to an examination of the nature of uh, how we know what we know and how we believe what we believe. It's interesting that you chose to put this in novel form, since one could easily just see this as being sort of a dry book about this kind of issue. Why, why a mathematical novel? That's, that's really interesting you use the word dry, Charles. <laughs> when I grew up, mathematics was taught to me as a, as a dry subject. Even in university, it tended to be sometimes a series of proofs and lemmas and corollaries, and the proof of a beautiful theorem would sometimes consist of refer to lemma 2a and corollary 6b, and hence the result. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just sucked out the amazing beauty and the delight of mathematics. Our first foremost purpose in writing this book is to show that mathematics is beautiful. I mean, independent of what it has to say about certainty, it's just amazingly beautiful. And that beauty is really communicated better with excited people talking about mathematics and showing each other how to do mathematics. And you want to show their emotions and their motivations and how they get their ideas and what it means to them in the rest of their life and even what it means philosophically. And that brings us back to the certain point. But all of these themes were best developed in the context of a novel. And really, I, I couldn't even see a way as how you, how you might do it in a dry textbook. And thank God. I mean, I think it's a much more interesting piece because it's a novel. Well, yes, considering that a number of the issues are largely philosophical in Bent, uh, it, it does require sort of that human element to make it a little more real. Indeed. And the human element, I ultimately believe that mathematics really is about a human element just as much or as little as anything else. I mean, one of the key conclusions is that we see the mathematical world and the world at large through a human lens, just because it's humans who do mathematics. And so, yes, because the philosophy begs the, the human question and also the mathematics brings us to a human question, it seemed, it seemed good to do it in a novel. That is one of the interesting uh, philosophical points. Can mathematics really exist outside of a human observer? Right. I grew up thinking, and I, I have days when I am completely convinced that it exists. You know, I mean, of course, one plus one equals two is uh, the most common refrain, but then it becomes more complicated because you think, hmm, it depends on how you define addition. One raindrop plus another raindrop on my windowsill makes one raindrop, not two. So how you define addition enters into the factor of why one plus one equals two. And Euclid's geometry, it has a fifth postulate, and we get into that in the book a little bit, seems so intuitive and so obvious as one plus one equals two, but it turns out not to be absolutely true of the space around us. So it really is about the axioms and the axioms that underline how we think and how we see mathematics and the world. 
I wonder if maybe you can talk a little bit more about Euclid's elements and more particularly because that scene is usually the bedrock and absoluteness of a lot of mathematics there. Sure. First of all, I think Euclid should be studied because his geometry is just so beautiful. I grew up in school and it was a thrill to find proofs and connections and it's this is cold stark logic, but I don't think when we, we humans do mathematics, we follow any cold stark logic. I mean, the idea of getting a jazz piece, for example, is not all that different from getting a new idea in mathematics. So Euclid's geometry is just beautiful in its right. So that's number one. Now, number two is Euclid was a really interesting figure. He, it's unclear how much of the geometry in the elements he actually did. He may have consolidated a lot of geometry that existed from the time of the Pythagoreans. But what Euclid undoubtedly did was he tried to systemize mathematics. So he said, look, I want everything to be logical. I don't want circular arguments. I don't want intuitive flashes and call them proof. He, he really gave humanity its first idea of what rigorous proof should be. And to that end, he started with a few axioms, postulates sometimes called. And these postulates were things like between two points you can draw a line and things that, that seem really intuitive and obvious. And he said from these five statements I, and a few definitions, I am going to derive an amazing geometric structure. And, you know, he proved all kinds of things. He proved, for example, that a triangle has 180 degrees if you add the sum of its angles within it. The one fly in the ointment, and it was a really fortunate fly in the ointment, was about the fifth postulate. It concerned the fifth postulate. And allow me to just state what it is briefly because it's essential to the argument. He said, he, Euclid, said that if you have a line and a point that's not on the line, so imagine a line and a point above the line, he said that it's possible to only draw one line through that point, which is parallel to the original line, which if you think about it for a second, seems pretty reasonable. I mean, if I have a line and a point and I draw another line through it, boy, I mean, that's the only line that's going to be parallel because if I slope it just a little bit, eventually it's going to meet. Now, the problem was that Euclid didn't like this axiom as much as he liked his first four. His first four were really simple and really intuitive. But this fifth one, the way he stated it, was a little bit longer and it took space and it just seemed to him that it should be proved from his other postulates. And it, he tried. The evidence is anecdotal, but I feel quite certain reading the elements that he tried. In particular, he does his first 28 theorems or propositions without using the fifth, which to me speaks to, for him to have a little bit of discomfort with the fifth, if you like. But he couldn't prove it. He couldn't prove the fifth postulate from the first four. And then we have a series of characters, I think some of the best mathematicians and the best brains of the last 2,000 years, they tried to do the same thing. They tried to prove the fifth postulate, and they largely didn't succeed until a gentleman by the name of Sakeri tried an unusual approach. And what he said was, well, I will assume that the fifth postulate is false, and sooner or later I'll get to a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he tried for a lifetime, and he never really got to a contradiction. He got to results that seemed increasingly obscure and bizarre. And then at the end point, he just picked a result which was particularly obscure and called that contradiction because it was so repellent to the senses. But really, it wasn't a contradiction. And there were people like Lobachevsky and Bolyai, uh, Russian and Hungarian, respectively, who developed non-Euclidean geometries, which started by assuming that one of Euclid's postulates was false and discovered a systematic geometry of the universe, 
which physics is showing us is at least as true as uh, Euclid's, if, if not truer. Einstein's general theory of relativity points to the fact that space is non-Euclidean. So, in a sense, the argument after all this is that a lot of these sort of ideas just depend on how the definition of space or whatever your system is. That's a good way of stating it, Charles. I think a lot of what we think depends on how we start thinking. And in mathematics, we start with our axioms. In life, you know, maybe we start perhaps with how we grew up or how our brains are wired or our genetics and so forth. But there is a starting point, and reason only can apply to starting points. And in mathematics, as the example I gave you earlier, it's completely possible to start with starting points that are not true of the real world, uh, are not, in Euclid's case, not true of space. There is the mathematics of infinity, where Cantor did a lot of great work in. And there are statements that Cantor investigated that are neither provable or disprovable in the traditional axioms of set theory. So my point is that really how we see the universe is determined by what we start with. And the starting points are key, much more so than the operations we make on the starting point. Context is everything. Our humanness is everything because our humanness is what brings us to the axioms in the first place. So one of the other issues, of course, that the book deals with is how the sort of mathematical approach of logic and proofs could be applied to other things, in in particular, in this case, religion. Yeah, it was fascinating for me to try to do what Euclid did in geometry to think about how that might apply to religion. And the philosopher Spinoza actually wrote his books in Euclid style. He started with uh, definitions and he had theorems and postulates and so forth. And it was a very logical treatment of religion. What's interesting is that religion doesn't emphasize the deductive processes as much as mathematics does. Mathematics starts with axioms and then we do a bunch of deduction and we get to some results. In religion, the starting points are much more important. People tend to have some notion of what God is and tend to believe in him or her. or They tend to have a notion that, boy, the very concept is ridiculous. It's Those are both axioms. And people can argue about an axiom being reasonable or unreasonable, but you know what? It's a matter of faith. Ultimately, for 2,000 years, Euclid's axioms were a matter of faith. Now, I am not by any means trying to draw a parallel between the axioms of mathematics and the axioms of faith, or even taking a side. Uh, I mean, I have my own beliefs, but I'm not even using this to take a side that, oh, mathematics is based on axioms and religion is based on axioms, so religion is as, as on as solid ground as mathematics is. I do not believe that's the case. But I do believe that there is an element of faith in all human knowledge. I mean, there is a starting point, and the starting points are necessarily leaps of faith that we make based on our experience, our upbringing, our genetics, our, the circuitry of our brain, but they're starting points. There is the widely famous story of uh, Ramanujan. A lot of his ideas and axioms that he postulated came largely through inspiration and intuition. Is that much of mathematics not really appreciated, the sort of intuitive aspect? Yeah, it's interesting you should bring up Ramanujan, Charles. Ramanujan is widely thought of as this somewhat mysterious character who who came up with his mathematics almost magically. And and I think that, in reality, is false. I think it's inspired because it's inspired that Ramanujan was a little-known clerk in the south of India, and from nowhere, because of his mathematical genius, he came up with some of the most astounding and brilliant and most beautiful results that humans have ever known. 
But my contention, and obviously I never knew the man, he was uh, well dead before my time, but my contention is that Ramanujan came about his results through a very similar process to which modern-day mathematician or need any mathematician comes to his results and conclusion. The discovery of proof is a deeply mysterious and just a fantastic capability of the human brain. I am astounded by it. I think back frequently on ideas I have had in my modest way to help me prove or disprove something. And it is, it is impossible to systematically say this is how we do proof. If they come out of the same spot or a similar spot as music or art. People don't think of asking a jazz pianist, well, what made you think to improvise this way? And I, and I think mathematics, as the English mathematician G.H. Hardy once said, mathematics is about making patterns. And how mathematicians come to their patterns and how in particular Ramanujan came to his patterns, I think is a source of mystery and to me, awe and magic. So uh, the sort of appreciation that one can have for mathematics, you would argue, would be sort of the same aesthetic appreciation one would have for things like jazz. What do you think it would take for sort of the average person to gain that appreciation for the beauty of proof in math? This, Charles, to me, is, is the question. I, I think it's clear that I do believe that mathematics is beautiful, like jazz or painting or, or any art form. The difference is that to appreciate mathematics, you have to do it. It's not a spectator sport. Music can be a spectator sport. And to do it, there has to be a certain amount of training to learn the language of mathematics. And unfortunately, mathematics, the way it's been taught historically, has been taught in those dry textbook forms we spoke about. Things are not presented as beautiful and they're not presented as relevant. You know, carpentry is very relevant and jazz is very beautiful. Mathematics is often taught as neither. So a student is going to ask himself or herself, why, why the heck should I study this? And too often there is a geekiness or almost a bad form to, to like mathematics. Well, I'm here to communicate, and I hope uh, this book uh, communicates that, no, mathematics is beautiful. And I think to get over this hang-up that so many in our society have, I think mathematics should be presented in the context of human conversation and human elements and our art forms, such as our books and movies even, should show mathematicians delighting in mathematics the way musicians delight in music. Because believe me, they do. Uh, I mean, it, it's no doubt in my mind that awe and that fascination of discovering a great mathematical secret is no different from uh, devising a great symphony. I, and I think the fact that a lot of people don't enjoy mathematics is an unfortunate cultural shortcoming that is being perpetuated by ignorance. Well, I think certainly your book succeeds in many ways in communicating that enthusiasm. How did you actually come up with this particular story and the interactions of these people in the book? Yeah, th there are two stories set in the book intertwined uh, of a grandfather and a grandson. The grandfather's story is that he's an Indian mathematician, and he comes to Morissette, New Jersey. Morissette is not a real town, but Morristown is a real town, and I'll, I'll tell you in a second why we chose Morristown. The, the grandfather gets convicted of blasphemy, and he is taken to prison, and much of the book consists of a conversation between him and a judge, and they get into arguments about faith, and he presents his mathematics, and there's a thread that takes them through Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometries as they get to how we know the things we know. The reason we call it Morissette, essentially, is because Morristown in New Jersey, which is a real town, was the last town in which a conviction for blasphemy was actually upheld. So it's a really interesting history. The blasphemy law, I understand, is still in the books in many states. There's no prosecutions 
behind it. But the law continues to exist. And so from that springboard, we thought, well, you know, let's have a thoughtful person of faith and a thoughtful mathematician interact in the context of a, of a prison setting and figure out on what basis do we build our laws, on what basis do we build our society, on what basis do we build our beliefs. And it's two violently opposed belief sets that, that clash in the context of prison. And that was just to, that came about because I really am interested in understanding how we know things and how we believe things. The second storyline in the book is of the grandson uh, as he uncovers his grandfather's mysterious blasphemic past. He uh, is going to Stanford and sort of unclear on what he wants to do with his life. And he's asking himself as to on what basis should I decide things and because he's interested in in the grandfather's story he gets interested in epistemology which is the study of human knowledge and their stories intertwine and uh, both those stories are are personal to me and and they both stem from my interest in knowing how we know i'm curious uh, in your thinking about it do you think that there's some societies that perhaps are more inquiring in this regard or more open to inquiry interesting interesting question i have thought about this i mean i think i think america is a country where everything is questioned and nothing is assumed. I mean, this is one of the freest places that's ever existed in human history. And I, I think it's fortunate to live in these times and live in a country where you have the freedom and opportunity to question. I worry that much of the world is really going the other way, that the spirit of questioning, the spirit of inquiry is not being allowed to to surface because i think human beings at our very core we're philosophical we're curious we wonder why and a lot of societies are becoming more prescriptive in this regard this is the right way and you know when when you ask human beings not to question pretty soon we shut down and i worry that more and more for greater and greater number of peoples for a variety of reasons this drive that we have in this country to question and ask is being suppressed well, hopefully that won't continue on this path. <laughs> uh, well, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm just curious if you maybe have any uh, final words, I guess, regarding the book or the philosophy behind the, the book itself. Yeah, w- one, one thing I leave your audience with is I, I tend to believe that there is a lot of communication and coexistence that should be nurtured between the sciences and literature. And I think mathematical novels or scientific novels are a great way to appreciate why we do science, why we do mathematics. And I I think they could be a great genre, if you like, to communicate great scientific ideas in human terms, in human contexts. And a certain ambiguity certainly tries to do that for mathematics. And and I hope uh, your, your listeners check it out and enjoy it. Well, I certainly hope they do as well. Are there any plans for a future novel in the works? I am interested in the brain very much, and I am working on something that is perhaps going to be, instead of a mathematical novel, a novel of cognitive neuroscience. Mm. So that's, that's in the works. And obviously, it's much easier to ask human questions in the context of a brain than in mathematics. But they both are in the same genre, which is they try to explore scientific ideas in terms that matter to people, in terms that people can relate to. Well, I certainly hope the listeners will go take a look at uh, your new novel. Again, it is called A Certain Ambiguity, a Mathematical Novel. Mr. Grove Suri, thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. And you were just listening to Grove Suri discussing A Certain Ambiguity. This is the Burke and Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
It's not easy having yourself a good time. It's the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic certain or uncertain. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are certain or uncertain. Uh, Mr. Surrey, you ready to play the game? Yes. All right, here we go. Person number one, certain or uncertain, O.J. Simpson. Oh, I'm certain he's guilty, so certain. <laughs> I think most people are. It's, it's a wonder he's not in jail, though. <laughs> All right, number two is the San Francisco Giants home run slugger, Barry Bonds. Yeah, uncertain. I'm going to vote for uncertain. Most people seem to think that he did steroids, but my point of view is it's, it's an amazing achievement, so I'm, I'm voting for uncertain. Okay, very good. Uh, number three is Britney Spears. I don't know much about her, so I'm certain. Okay. Okay, number four is the billionaire Richard Branson. Yeah, he seems he seems really go-getting, and he seems to have a very definite idea of what he wants to try, so I'm saying certain. Okay. Uh, number five, finally, it is the president of the United States, George Bush. Oh, he sees the world in black and white. He's certain about a lot of things he does. I, I frankly doubt that he's uncertain about anything, so uh, certain. Okay, well, he certainly has uh, very absolute beliefs, it would seem. Yes. All right, well, Mr. Suri, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game. And, of course, talking about your book, uh, A Certain Ambiguity, a mathematical novel. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. It was our pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, my friend. Now it is Esteban Spaniard with the answer to last week's question of the week. Laser-guided missiles, my friend. You want to know how it does it? Laser-guided with the laser power to understand exactly what your target is. And now Esteban knows where you live. Arr. Okay, and here at Tokyo Kid with the, this week's uh, question of the week. What is the great correlation? If you know or think you know the answer, you can email us at uh, grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you may just more sugary. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. I'm Frank Kling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.